In today's podcast, we look at the varying fortunes of the parties. It's been a frisky old fortnight. The Tories have lost two by-elections. Uh, Labour was on a high and then it's taken a bit of a pummeling over Gaza. Uh, SNP fortunes, yep, they've been kind of bumping up and down. Ash Reagan's moved to Alaba and uh, the, the WhatsApp storm that is still around us. The Greens, well, Lorna Slater has kicked off something by saying that she might not see independence as a red line and do a deal with Labour in a future Scottish government. So it's basically all go. And it's all go on this podcast in a slightly different way because uh, Pat is still off in a wheel. Um, he's got a bit of a cough, which is the one thing that really stops you from being able to do a podcast. Um, so I know everyone's good wishes are with him, but the pressure's building up a bit for him because that's two weeks that we haven't had a podcast. We both know that you love to get the podcast. So we have cranked out uh, Chris Smith, who has kind of come out of re- semi-retirement on the podcast front, to stand in for Pat today. Well, I th- I'm glad to be here, Leslie. It's um, I'm sorry about the smell of liniment, uh, as I've obviously come off the substitute bench. <laughs> I'm uh, limbering up and hope I'm uh, match fit, as they say. Right, gosh, and that that may or may not have been read out. I, I can't tell, see, because we're sitting actually in my kitchen face to face for the first time in a long time. Because Pat and I never actually got back to doing face to face stuffy. Because what? of the, you know, after the COVID thing, because Skype was just so much blooming easier. Indeed. But we're all now getting back to uh, abandoning hybrid and doing face-to-face. So we'll have to limber up all of those social interaction skills that we thought we had lost. Yes. Yeah. So one of them is, uh, I've got to practice the old line. This is the Leslie Riddick podcast with me, Chris Smith. And me, Leslie Ruddick. So, Leslie, it's been a busy old week. <laughs> oh, the muscles are returning. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's talk about Tory... Well, busy old two weeks, you see, well, that's the okay, thing. Anyway, weeks. so, yeah. Well, but let's start with... Oh, this is going to be a bit of a fortunes week, isn't it? So, yeah. let's start with Tory fortunes. What's been going on? Uh, do you know, uh, this is the point where I just now wish we were on Skype because it's... The names of the veri- the veritable by-elections are not in my head that they lost. Indeed. Well, th- that's the whole point, isn't it? Because I feel, <laughs> well I feel, I feel that we're actually... I've When we looked at these topics, I mean, I, the first words that I jotted down were last days of empire. Because I, I feel that if you listen very carefully, that's the sound of lots of desks being tidied up as mm. the polls seem to indicate that the... Tories, whoever and bless them, are um, are probably not long for for Westminster. So there'll be multiple searches for uh, what the severance pay is, what the pension contributions needed to have been, and also you know that fabulous uh, loss of office payment that they're all going to get. So uh, that's what I think is the the fortunes just now. Now, what does that translate to in terms of the day to day Tory presence on Sky well, News? Yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, it's um, Boris Johnson is now sort of gracing GB News, which is just, you know, when you did you see that on with him? I mean, a really badly filmed little kind of um, sort of monologue, basically, essentially saying I'm back with all the stuff that basically you didn't care enough about to keep me in power. And I'll just be talking about it a lot on GB News, which to me swings the door pretty nicely shut on that as a kind of useful organ. But the other thing that's going on in the background, actually, that I didn't know was that there is um, an alliance for responsible citizenship going on quietly, I think, this week in London. And this has got, I mean, again, a cast of all the sort of people that either you don't quite recognise the names or you sort of think, is that that really crazy guy from the States that dot, 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 yeah, it is him. You know, minders for uh, Trump, all sorts of folk, including the guy who got skipped out as the uh, Speaker of the House of uh, Representatives. And then the whole gamut, basically, of, of conservativeness in Britain because... They're basically in there trying to kind of see which way the Tories will go when they're beaten. So, you know, they're all realigning. They've all got to pitch up and look more right. And this is what the the, the, the jazz around this thing, if you can believe it, with this, this government, which is already to the far right, as far as anyone in Scotland's concerned, um, th- their, their mission is to go further right. 
and perhaps by meeting to try and pressure the budget that's coming up in a couple of weeks to actually cut tax. And you think, you know, who, who in their right minds look at the complete mess everything's in? Really? Really? You know, I mean, do you think, because that's not going to steady the ship. That is just going to, but that perhaps whoever is the one that's bold enough to cut tax. And there was rumours as well that Jeremy Hunt might look a little bit too soft. And there was even rumours that Rishi Sunak might sack him before the budget. I mean, it's worth bearing this all in mind, because when we go on to talk about the SNP, any sense of equivalence in the chaos that there is between two governments is you've got to bear in mind what you're comparing to at the moment. And that's where the Conservatives are at, basically meeting to try and decide, you know, big issues like, is it uh, Suella Braverman or, you know, Kemi Badenoch that you fancy as the next Prime Minister of this country? Yeah, but I think it's all kind of academic because I see much of that as being, this is securing the next gig. Uh, there's a big folder, I'm sure, that they've all got, which is um, trying to get out there and parade their CVs. Because in a sense, they're a bit like a football team, sorry to bring the analogy in, but the, the, they know relegation is going to happen. And um, as much as they want to say, yeah, I'm playing for the badge or whatever it actually is, what they're trying to do is get themselves into a position where they're seen as being, you know, if only they they'd been uh, uh, been allowed to continue in power, they would have been the the, the same. So you mean they're just kind of trying to pitch for the next job in a consultancy somewhere? I would imagine that if you if you were to look at LinkedIn right now, the place would be a wash <laughs> with CVs being uploaded, updated, um, in, interests in everything being being put in as as being potentials for that lobbying. Because remember, whatever happens, uh, the, the, the really big the big beasts will probably have already secured their landing places, House of Lords, some some job somewhere that, that, that will make them cosy forever. But the rest of the, the, uh, the, the soldiers, as it were, have got to kind of find places to, to land. And they've got to... You know, they've got to trade on probably something for 18 months where they can say, well, we actually know how government works. We we were very close to uh, the people at the Treasury, civil servants here, civil servants there. That's, I feel, is a lot of this. So, yeah, I would imagine there'd be lots and lots of conferences, a.k.a. networking opportunities for... So it's it's just this horror. It's, I mean, I know you say this very sanguinely, if that's a word, but, I mean, it is completely horrific. I mean, I know that's the way the world works. But it's it's kind of like, you know, it is like another version of Hotel California. You can vote these guys out, but they never leave because their tentacles are all the way through a civil service. That You know, and, and in any case, we've got a Labour Party that's going to stick so closely to their ideas and their spending and their... Well, hmm. I think the proof of, of, of if what I'm saying is even slightly correct might... Temptation would be say just look at all of the uh, all of the news channels and just see the number of fresh-faced um, uh, media-trained Tory MPs who will uh, actually uh, be appearing, even though they will have officially said, "Well, I'm going to stand down," or whatever. Because I think it is now we're in the, that period where nothing can actually hurt them in a, in a sense, and it really is trying to find the the landing place. So, and they can throw anything around, and actually, they're not going to have to be there to, 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 to manage it after the event. So, you, you don't think that they're actually trying to bid, you know, to become the next leader of the Tory party? Ho ho! You think that's not what people are up for? Well, who would want it? Yeah, but who would want it anyway? You know, after Liz Truss crashed the economy, they all were back in. I mean, who even wanted it back then after Boris had left? Because in many ways, Boris was the tin lid, really. Yeah, remind me, how many people voted for Rishi? I know, I know, I know. Yes, true, actually, just a handful. I I think there's going to be, there's going to have to be a period of, of reconstruction. They'll all have, using the football analogy, they'll have their parachute payment down down into the uh, uh, from the the championship from the premiership or first division whatever you like and it's going to be regrouping and to a certain degree the next leader of the Tory party it really doesn't matter because mm. for five years he she they will be 
Well, yeah. Uninteresting. Well, they, could, they, could, they could also <laughs> find themselves skipping in and out the BBC, you know, at the rate that the top echelons of that have got former party hacks. Anyway, so... Uh, what, what about... What, OK, so we've, we've um, effectively um, trashed the, the, the Tories. I think it's time for Labour, is it not? What a strange, what a strange time to be, uh, to be having what seem to be almost theological discussions about in a time when we know particularly with the Middle East situation all round that words have to be carefully chosen that inflammatory language is probably the wrong thing to indulge in given the Tory party's recent brush with semitism anti-semitism and the rest what how how did how did things come to this well, dear knows. I mean, I think the problem is, you know, generally speaking, Keir Storm has got, here are just red lines that we are not crossing. We are going to not be the party of, of uh, Jeremy Corbyn. We are going to take everything that he stood for and there's going to be a no way tose on all of them. And we're going to have a really absolutely tough line on this so that nobody steps out of line. And that has run through the party for the last two years, as people will point out. Um, that pretty much captured the left by getting elected on a platform that basically appealed to the left with all sorts of commitments that are now being cheerfully trashed. So the left, you know, voted for Starmer as well. He got in, dropped the policies and then basically challenged everyone. If you don't like it, just leave. So this is there's been years now of people just being kind of almost primed within the Labour Party to accept the ideas that are coming from Keir Starmer, not to argue. It's a command control situation and that's happened on many fronts. Now, everyone knows that this charge of anti-Semitism was the one that really, really stuck with Labour. So that was the one he was going to really, really make sure they never, ever had a problem with again. And then the horrible well, horrible is just the appalling atrocity happened with Hamas invading Israel and killing 1,700 people. And then Israel begins to pummel Gaza. Now, I mean, within even though there's been a purge probably within Labour and a lot of the lefties have, have left and are pretty homeless, and you can see that from the, the types of people who are retweeting really stringent criticisms of Starmer right from the start, so, you know, people like Neil Finlay, for example, who was a Labour MSP in Hollywood, just, you know, just, just uh, retweeting stuff with scandalous and, and, you know, really strong language. That's just the tip of the iceberg, as everybody's now seeing at, at slow, different, you know, speeds. All sorts of people are now bristling. Um, clearly, very quickly, some Labour Party members in Glasgow Kelvin resigned. Uh, other Labour parties in Edinburgh, North and Leith resigned. Um, there have been now slowly, there's a gathering south of the border where Sadiq Khan, obviously the mayor of London, a Muslim, um, Andy Burnham, uh, the, the northern mayor who has, you know, these are, you know, huge Muslim constituencies. Uh, and, um, and and Anna Sarwar has slowly come, come around. Now, these guys are all now talking about a ceasefire and and I just saw the most extraordinary interview of Darren Jones. Right, here's a test for you. Who's Darren Jones? Darren Jones, you say? Well, he is the Shadow Chief Secretary to the Treasury. My God, that's astonishing. I do, you know, really? How on earth do you know that? Well, I've watched him on the telly a couple of times. And he was the chairman of a select committee for trade. And he was very good at holding people like the post office chief executives to... Well, the feet to the fire. Right, I am speechless because actually I had to, you know, just look him up. But anyway, in this interview uh, with uh, Kay Burley, Darren Jones has basically asked, you know, is, do you not think the tide is kind of turning when you've got three very kind of the luminaries of, of senior Labour figures? That's Anna Sarwar, Andy Burnham, Sadiq Khan. Um, that's what Kay Burley asked. And he says, basically, they are not senior Labour figures. They are regional figures. And she comes back and says, oh, right, you know, Sadiq Khan is running one of the largest cities in the world. And he, he says, yeah, but they're not part of the cabinet and they're not part of the Westminster Labour Party, you know, the Parliamentary Labour Party. 
So the thing is, it, in just a little snapshot there, now you set another hair running. And this is the trouble you get into with, you know, situations like this. Because not only um, is the, the Muslim vote very alienated and... Um, you know, that's another interesting thing because George Caravan did a very good uh, piece in The National today where he's looking at Muslim support. Um, in fact, it, it's been solidly pro-Labour. Um, 87% apparently in 2017 Muslims voted Labour, down to 78% 2017, but not much of a difference. And that same poll company are suggesting that next time round, as a result of this, uh, only 38% of Muslims will vote Labour, apparently. There's even another, uh, which George does say, Muslim census, he says, I don't quite know what their methods are, and I think it was a bit self-selecting. But that's suggesting that only 5% would back Labour at, a, at another general election. And the point about this is, well, quite apart, <laughs> apart from the reality of the situation and the fact that something that the Labour Party calls for is now basically giving, giving, if you like, a, a kind of direction of travel to Britain. So it's not just a kind of wafty opposition, nobody's really listening. David Lammy's out there in the Middle East at the moment, the Shadow Foreign Secretary, meeting foreign secretaries because they know that he's going to be the next foreign secretary. Weirdly, at the same time that James Cleverly of the actual government is out doing much the same thing. So when it comes back to this, though, this would suggest that even if you weren't looking at the humanitarian side of of the things that Keir Starmer basically said and alienated lots of people who weren't Muslim, actually. So Glasgow Kelvin, Edward North and Leith, these guys who resigned from the Labour Party almost immediately after that LBC uh, interview. You've still got a really bad tactical thing to have done because you've you've made a very big mistake in seeing the only thing that matters being that you stick absolutely rigidly to the the nothing must rock our reputation for for being absolutely uh, pro-Israel and anti-Semitism doesn't have a place in the Labour Party. Well, fine, but it now looks like a lot of Muslims feel they haven't got a place in the Labour Party. Yeah, I'm not going to take up cudgels on behalf of Darren Jones because I feel there are some things where uh, misrepresentation is going on. Because later in the 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 interview, they talk about uh, he he makes the distinction between humanitarian pause and ceasefire. And bearing in mind that again, coming to the whole situation, cool heads. Careful words are probably the way forward because we're trying to persuade rather than protest our way or bully or bludgeon everyone to what is eventually going to be. What, what does success in the Middle East going to look like? It's going to be people talking in some way, shape, fashion or form. And I think, for example, we're... We're asked, we, we know so much about the the Labour position because we're we're kind of focusing on them, and that's the you know it's right that we should keep keep our eyes on them. But at the same time, I'm really still not clear what exactly is the UK position on all this, the UK government position on this. You know, we seem to have moved. Um, parts of the navy around, and what what does that actually signify? And how does you know providing a hundred hospital beds in a hospital ship, for example, how does that bring things forward? I'd be much more concerned right now in understanding what the UK government are pushing for, what they want to do, what channels are being pursued to make what is eventually going to be a ceasefire. How is that going to happen? I'd like to know more about that versus, and this is kind of like a slightly inside baseball discussion about the theology of or, or almost the, theological um, distinctions that we're having to make within some of the language which is used. Yeah, but this, this refers. Over. But okay, but this refers back to Keir Starmer saying in an interview on LBC that Israel had the right to withhold fuel, water, and food from Gaza. Now, you know, whichever way you want to look at this, he said that. Then he couldn't own it. Then he tried not to you know, pretend he hadn't said it at all. And all of that, as with everything else, that sort of denial, that kind of I didn't really say it anyway stuff, begins to create the gathering storm. At the same time as every night, people are seeing you know, images of... of <laughs> of children and women and just, you know, awful, awful images. You, you, 
I, I go to sleep just imagining, trying to imagine what it's like to be sort of sitting cowering in a corner somewhere that you've been told is safe. Um, and then discovering that actually you've just been half blown up and what do you do next? And of course, for, for anyone following this, Hamza Yusuf's family, his, his in-laws are out there for the period that there was no communications. They had no idea what had happened to him. Now they do know that they've run out of water. So the thing is, these are all the absolute kind of things that a normal person can identify with. Not having water, having your children killed, have, running, you know, and, and basically seeing these, these pictures from the Israeli point of view, taking out a Hamas target, and then from the ground, what that actually turns into is a block of flats on top of something, and it's a block of flats and the people that you see. So the thing is that the call for a, a ceasefire, which Hamza Yusuf made first, and, and, and made well because he had the whole preamble of very thoughtful, careful wording, reaching out very explicitly to both the loved Jewish and Muslim communities of Scotland. You have to earn the right to be able to say something like calling for a ceasefire because you have to get there through demonstrating in your language and, and your decision to speak exactly how careful and how empathetic you're being in all of this and nobody else is bothering you know the the amount of emotional labor that seemed to go into that speech was that he made on Tuesday yeah. of last week and which was shown nowhere you know was was really quite astonishing and that's what i think somebody expected to see from a leader of the official opposition because that's the way westminster works you know, okay, there's a thing about in, in periods of difficulty, there's an expectation people, you know, both sides knuckle down and adopt some of the same position. But until somebody started talking about ceasefire well, which is what Hamza Yusuf's done, it wasn't entering the political debate in anything other than angry, angry, angry people standing and getting more angry because if you're not heard in the in the normal discourse of politics, your only recourse is to get to demonstrations, get to whatever it is, and just eventually vent your rage. Politics is meant to be about channeling that in ways that don't create confrontation for people. And the only person who has been doing that is Hamza Yusuf up until now, until we got belatedly these other three Labour figures have rolled in and have then been sort of described as just not even, you know, they don't even throw six to start. So in the course of that, you also see where Labour hierarchies are and you can, you know, be as influential as Andy Burnham, we kind of thought was, you can be running the one of the world's biggest cities or you can be running, you know, standing f f to be running a country as Anna Sar would like to be. But hey, you don't throw six on this one. Yeah, so I guess the, the, the challenge is that uh, for Keir Starmer is whatever his ill-judged words were and ill-judged um, comments on in the media is so it's perfectly worthwhile spending our time concentrating on that versus all the other things which are going on. I, that's my that's solely my point, you know. To whether Darren Jones describes because it's, um, I mean, Andy Burnham or, or whatever as being correctly not part of the cabinet uh, in the grander scheme of things. I think there are other things that we need we need to be worrying about here. And to take your point about calling for ceasefires, I agree that is a laudable aim. I would like to have peace in, in the Middle East. I would call for peace in the Middle East. I'm not going to get it. What I might get would be a humanitarian pause where people allow the 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 aid to come in and for starting to build bridges towards how you would normalise the situation. But, every, but, moment, but, but everything moment. works like that. When the, you know, in Northern Ireland, when there was a ceasefire, the first ceasefire, uh, which was a big decision for the IRA, Sinn Féin, to, to take, um, that basically put a wedge in the door. You, you, you know, it may have looked like it was a temporary thing. There was no coming back from it. And, you know, this is going to be so much harder than just keeping going on the violence front, because this would take all sorts of intermediaries being brought in, 
the people who could speak to Hamas? What could be the future for Hamas? Yeah. I, I mean, I have no idea. No, but the, point, they get... but the, point, the point is, is if this is a bit like the, um, the the situation I remember that when uh, someone was applying for a grant that where they could uh, they could get money for a renovation of a, a community asset, but they insisted on calling it a repair. And the grant givers said, oh, it's renovation. The SVs were all We're not doing renovation, we're repairing. And we have to stick by we're, we're, but you know. geez, and honestly, think, this is you're this, in danger of sounding callous. No, as I'm you not, are no, I'm not because callous. you know you, I'm saying that how where where we get to peace is the tiny baby steps. And I think the tiny baby steps with a cool head are going to be what's the peace that we can all agree on? If there's something that's too large for us to get right now. Let's not the go rest for- of the UN was calling for a ceasefire. UK, the UK shamefully abstained. The majority of countries in the world, and of course you get to the awkward problem of Russia and the United States never agreeing on anything, but the majority of everybody else is able to put their names to a ceasefire. It's only Britain that's not. And it's quite right that, but you see, that's the trouble. You maybe didn't catch too much of that because it isn't given foreground because Starmer's on the same side as Sunak. So you don't get the Labour Party jumping up and down about that. You only get regional figures who are dismissed by the entire media agenda. And I mean, you get, for example, Labour MPs who, like the woman who stood up at the end of Prime Minister's questions and a Pretty sure Keir Starmer will be relieved there's no Prime Minister's questions this week because there's another recess. But um, Yasmin Qureshi, who was a Labour, who is a Labour MP, stood up and, she, you know, it was, it was in the guise of a question to Rishi Sunak because it was Prime Minister's questions, but was absolutely interpreted as one for Keir Starmer, where she's pointing out that at the moment, one child is dying every 15 minutes in Gaza. So if if they cannot channel and support international efforts to try and get that ceasefire idea as the thing that should be gone for with all the back channels and diplomacy and all the rest of it, if you can't be getting that word right to the forefront of everybody else's lips, and this is what the international community is for, because in the wake of what happened to the Israelis, they will feel rage. They will want revenge. Every community goes through these experiences and feelings and the job of other people is to place a template of something different upon that. And that template can only be done with as much unanimity as possible. It's not happened because, well, it's not just Britain, you know, bottling it that's caused the problem, but our part in this has not been very strong. And uh, I mean, I can't remember, sorry, I can't remember if I've mentioned it before, but, you know, the speech that Hamza Youssef made where he, he was he spent 12 minutes with a very, very emotional, very well-crafted speech. But he did say, you know, it, he gave always made equal mention of our, the Jewish and Muslim communities being both very precious to Scotland. And he'd spent time there. He'd eaten with people. He'd laughed. He'd danced with people. Um, and he said at one point, some say violence is inevitable, an eternal constant in the human condition. They're wrong the capacity to love is far greater. Now, you know, I mean, okay, I get a bit weepy at the best of times now, but I thought that was incredibly powerful. Somebody needed to heighten this in in these kind of ways to to elevate what we're talking about. And he also praised two organisations, the Palestinian Women of the Sun and the Israeli Women Wage Peace Group. You can check these people out on uh, Twitter. And they have been doing sort of synchronised parallel rallies together but apart uh, very often for years now trying to make the point that they feel one another's pain. Now all of that stuff is hard to say, hard to frame and takes a lot of restraint, emotional intelligence and courage to decide you're going to be the one who's going to come out and try to say these things when everyone else is just battening down the hatches and getting into the usual either evasive stuff or outright condemnation of this and that, you know, th- this is really necessary. And I find, I mean, you know, conversations I had with a guy in the local post office who discovered recently, I write for the National because there was a puff piece of thing with me in the front. Um, he's not too sure about independence, but he's blooming sure about Hamza Yusuf and um, said he's the only guy who's saying anything that reaches me. And that had reached him. 
Um, similarly, there was a researcher in a programme in London um, who we were talking about the things that might be covered this week. I said, well, there was this talk that Hamza Youssef did to the Scottish Parliament. And he said, Hamza Youssef, you know, the, again, he said, yeah, I really want to make sure that's covered. So despite the fact that there was actually no coverage of that speech, which does make me begin to think that this is what Scotland can look forward to, actually, if Labour should ever win the next election in, in Scotland, the Scottish Parliament election, is you just go back to being a regional voice because this is what how, do, how they, they behave and how the press all behave is that we just get airbrushed out unless you're actually... Hamza Yusuf, uh, sorry, unless you're Keir Starmer saying those words, they were not said. And yet the beauty of this is that across the country, somehow that that more empathetic message is getting out, despite the fact there's no media coverage of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, these are, I think this is a topic that you're going to come back to time and time again over the next wee while. Um, oh, the other thing I was going to say is that um, he also mentioned that there was a statement by senior rabbis and imams, a joint statement committing themselves to stand jointly against hatred to either community. Now, again, I'm no religious correspondent, and maybe this that's happened elsewhere, but you choose to, to, to try and encourage that, and then you choose to make it public. So this is the kind of framing that, that the whole of, well, everybody needs to have, and uh, yeah. Yeah, it's true. And I mean, the challenge is, I think, in the news cycle right now, it, you know, drone shots of, of people protesting seems to capture more of the imagination than the words of persuasion that are happening at, at local and, you know, community level. Because it, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't play well on the big, on the, on the big screens. And, the sensational need that we have to keep up to date with. Well, I, I sometimes think that the Beeb or whoever somehow think that they're being partisan to Hamza Youssef as an SNP leader by covering a speech he made as first minister of this country. And there's times where you have to just have a long conversation and decide what you've just heard. And the status of that, in fact, they could have had a, had coverage of the ensuing debate. Nobody, I think, was touching the kind of areas that he was on. <clears throat> but Douglas Ross and uh, Anna Sarber were there too. Um, so anyway, um, the, the only encouraging thing to me is that somehow, despite the fact that the media don't seem to be doing much about this, and there seems to be almost a blackout if you don't toe the Sunak-Starmer line, um, this different way of communicating is reaching people across the whole of Britain, actually. Mm -hmm. So let's move on from one topic about Labour onto, well, we talked about fortunes. What about S&P fortunes? It's been, a, as you would say, a frisky old period for them. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the last time we were, Pat and I recorded was in the, immediately in the wake of Hamza's conference speech. And he, you know, which again, because it, so much of it was about the Israel-Gaza situation, um, that really seemed to me to be incredibly strong. However, as, as I did point out in the immediate aftermath of it, the council tax freeze is not something that the Scottish government should even be able to do because it's a different tier of government. And again, it speaks to... You know, this is the problem. If you've come in as the conciliator, the negotiator and the guy who can, you know, who can make the connections that, to be blunt, Nicola Sturgeon's administration probably didn't make, you can't do things like this. You can't just, you know, months after the Verity House agreement that basically ensured respect, communication and everything between local government and Scottish government, you can't just come out with something that was concocted. I don't think even the cabinet knew about it. And I'm I'm quite sure that um, you know there'll have been other other parties will pull rabbits out of hats for conference purposes. But if if you're if you're creating a new style of leadership that's about the guy who jumped off the podium in Dundee and himself in the middle of middle of a keynote speech went up to to essentially negotiate with a woman who is shouting at him. You need to keep that up, I'm afraid. <laughs> so you can't do council tax freezes just to get an OR in the room. And actually, you might have thought that, you know, the council tax was something the SNP committed to reform in 2007. 
because it is so essentially regressive, the you know the the the, the valuations date back to I don't even nineteen nineties I think in some instances, but. Um, you know, there could have been something put forward that was a more, uh, many people have suggested it in hindsight, that was a more progressive way to deal with the council tax. But none of this, you know, it looked like it was all just done to get a bit of a wow in the conference speech. No, 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 <laughs> you just can't do it. So I think that that's been unravelling in the period since. Obviously, there's still the Lisa Cameron switching to the Tories thing, though that one, I think, went pretty quiet, pretty fast. Uh, since most people would think that is almost a definition of craziness that you would want to defect to a party that is about to just, you know, wave goodbye to the world, except that that way you, you do actually manage to keep a little bit more of your income for a little bit longer. But Ash Regan um, over the weekend, uh, I mean, she, she's not been a happy bunny, quite obviously, since the moment that that leadership election was announced. I mean, just a, if you remember it then, uh, Kate Forbes did look like the most relieved woman in the universe to have not won. Ash Reagan did look furious and Hamza Yusuf just got up and got on with it. And since then, she has looked pretty out of it. Um, and she didn't come to the Aberdeen conference for the big debate they had on the Sunday about about independence policy. Now I was on GMS and was asked about this. Um, and I mean, of course, there are people that think that what's what's on the go at the moment is simply not good enough, won't deliver independence. The whole of Alaba thinks that and many other people besides. But the SNP had a democratic process, a very good debate, people in it, uh, you, you know, who, who prominent MPs who wanted a stronger stance on, on independence. They wanted votes, not seats at the next election to be the benchmark. And they lost. And they stood by what the conference decided. So this is not just a tilt at the SNP leadership. It is actually a tilt, which is probably explains the move of party. The whole party has backed that. Ash didn't come to that debate. You know, a lot of people who were unhappy were there and argued their corner. So I think she was pretty detached from a while back um, and had fairly much given up on the SNP. So okay, so now she's the kind of leader of the Alba party in Holyrood. It'll be interesting to see how that works out. But I think there was a sort of bit of a mistake for Hamza again coming back to this. Other people can be nippy, but you just have to be the statesman in this. Um, and Alex Neal said at the weekend when he was asked, was she a loss? You know, because Hamza had said something like no great loss there. Um, you know, Alex has said, look, everybody's a loss. You know, I'm sad to see uh, Ash go. I'm sad to see all the members that we had, you know, 30,000 members from its peak having gone. We need to work to get these people back. And um, only a strong SNP will ever keep independence on the table. Now, was that too hard to say, you know, for Hamza? Yeah, well, I think he's going to have a lot on his, his plate in the next wee while, is he not? Because notwithstanding... All his his uh, personal involvement with Gaza, you know, he's got the the sight of what looks like the the WhatsApp messages and the COVID inquiry in Scotland rumbling along, and it's following a slightly different track to the uh, the UK inquiry because the UK inquiry seems to be a series of um, bombshells being dropped and star witnesses, whatever. Um, struck by the Scottish inquiry seems to be much more at the led by the victims um, uh, of COVID and the families being front and centre and kind of saying something really simple, which is we'd like to see some transparency, and that happens to be the the, the WhatsApp messages that may or may not have been deleted or whatever, um, and. It highlights a whole series of, of issues. There's a largely perception, which is what was the policy and what was the policy designed to do? Was it deliberately to obfuscate things for the future, to make it difficult to retrofit what was what was going on, and, or was it just? Good housekeeping, whatever it was, you know that's I think that's the, 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 the challenge. Yeah, and the, the thing is, um, Kieran Jenkins, who from Channel Four News, who was the Scotland correspondent at the time, 
posted a thing now. I'm, I can't remember, I'm trying to remember if it was 2020 or 2021. I think in 2020, um, Nicola Sturgeon said there would be an inquiry and that everything would be delivered to it. In 2021, he asked a very specific question about whether that inquiry would get WhatsApp messages and emails and everything else. And she had said, absolutely, it would. So the point would be that after that, if there was any sort of doubt about, you know, the, the wisdom of having disappearing messages or whatever it was on your phone, at that point, it should have ceased. And what seems to be the case is that 70 figures within the Scottish government have not got, apparently, any WhatsApp messages. And the, the thing again is that, that if it's true, and this is where we just need somebody to come out of the woodwork and state what the case is, because it's the evasiveness of all of this that is the, prob is the problem, um, because it highlights, it contrasts with something. And what it contrasts with is, ironically and uniquely almost, Westminster, uh, where um, I'm trying to remember, it's the chief medical officer whose WhatsApp messages included that stoter of a one describing uh, Rishi Sunak as Dr. Death for his Eat Out to Help Out scheme. Now, I don't know quite why all those messages stayed on the, the, the phones of key people in Westminster. Uh, but, you know, what has happened up till now, obviously, is that on every other count, you know, people would look at Scotland as having pretty much best practice on a lot of stuff. Sure, there were mistakes. There's going to be that big question about why people were released into nursing homes early. But there was no crony contracts. There was no, uh, you know, dash to Barnard Castle by the equivalent of Dominic Cummings. Um, and, uh, you know, there was there was none of the sort of fast lane for contracts and all that kind of stuff. There was no party gate. So what's happening now is people are in danger of starting to think, oh, look, they were all as bad as one another. And that is, you know, on all these different markers of that behaviour, that is just not true. But that's what you get if you're evasive and you start answering straight questions about where's the WhatsApp messages and you answer with, we've given you 200 pages of evidence. I mean, you don't have to be a, the brightest spark to say that's not an answer to the question you've just been asked. Answer that question. Yeah, Even if it's an apology and saying, yeah, at the time we thought this was the best way to work, but yeah, in hindsight, mm, mistake. Yeah, I guess one of the things I look at is in all of this, which is the enormous rise in WhatsApp as uh, part of the communication mix and what role it actually plays in inf informing decisions. Because, you know, emails between government ministers and, and uh, you know, the whole ministerial and part of government which is run by email is all tracked and everybody's really careful about backing things up and whatever. But there's this whole level of, uh, of stuff which goes on in WhatsApp now because it's the preferred method of, of conversation, you know, in just the same way as it's almost up there with mobile telephone calls, you know, and we wouldn't expect, for example, every message, every mobile phone conversation that everybody has to be yeah, you, you did a wee bit of digging, actually. You had some great statistics oh, on that. Yeah, the Ofcom did a, a, a published a report about basically online communications, which included WhatsApp. And, and basically, the the world has changed between uh, 2012 and 2022. A 10-year survey, which was undertaken by Ofcom, revealed that uh, text messages had dropped from about 151 billion in 2020, 2012 to about 36 billion in uh, 2022, in the same period of time, the online communications had gone from 100 billion in 2012 to nearly 1.3 trillion in the same period. So the rise of online communication that includes everything from uh, WhatsApp right the way down to Teams and Zoom and everything else that we're, we're used to, Snapchat, DMs and whatever. And this, the, the, the big focus is WhatsApp has grown out of all recognition. Now, my guess is that if you went into um, any organization right now and said, uh, what's your policy on WhatsApp? You'd be really struggling to kind of get a, a, a comprehensive policy about it. Whereas in email, you, for example, with all the confidentiality and the... Um, the, the, the disclaimers which appear in every email that you seem to receive from anybody. WhatsApp, not so much. And yet that's the preferred option. Um, and it's also the preferred option, uh, as it turns out, for 
messaging groups. So it's not just one-to-one -one communication, it's one-to-many. So in lots of different ways, it's an interesting challenge because it comes all from a technology point of view. It's all the wrong time to, to be, you're in the middle of a pandemic, you're using the fancy new technology. No one's around to actually say, this is what best practice should look like. Here's the disclaimers we should put in place. Here's the archiving, blah, 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 whatever. They're not around to do that. Um, and, you know, the high... Uh, th the reason most people use WhatsApp is it's just highly convenient. It's just really easy. Multiple platforms, you know, you don't have to have a phone to use it. You can use it on, on multiple devices. And privacy and security are not the big things for people to choose WhatsApp. So just as a technology, this isn't, I would not like to have this particular problem landing on my Mm. Uh, on my in, in trade right now. No, but 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 the, but the first you know, the first thing is to just, I think for Hamza Yusuf and I th he's been under incredible strain because of the pressure of his relatives in in Gaza, but he's he's strongest and his best suit is to get back to being the conciliator, the straight bat batsman, if you like, and distancing himself completely from any sort of you know weasel words kind of approach to politics other people can do it you can't do it and all your folk have to be the same so that is kind of like a bit of a tall bar tomorrow tuesday for shona robison who has to make a statement about all of this stuff and just clear it up because it's also in a way i mean they are you know the relatives will doubtless think that there are bigger issues that they really want to focus on than just this issue of these kind of communications channels except that it looks like it may look like contemptuous behavior and it now looks like evasive behavior so people can't hear or move on to the things that really matter to them while they're they're hooked on these kind of behavioral issues and it's up to shona robson to just clear that up actually that's true. I'd like clearing up things up. Let's turn to green fortunes because uh, Lorna Slater was pretty straightforward. No red lines. Yeah, she was in an interview on the Sunday show and, uh, you know, Jim was getting a fairly robust questioning by Martin Geisler, who's sort of saying, you know, you guys really, you, you, you don't need to be in coalition with the with the, the SNP. You got as much out of it, basically not being in government. And she was kind of saying, yeah, you probably saw more kind of, you know, noise when we weren't in government. But quietly, we've got quite a number of things through. And she listed quite a few things off that they're now looking at uh extending uh, uh, quite a lot of the kind of green deal which I think are the sort of things that most people would probably respond to but she was asked at the end anyway um, you know if she would consider basically a, a, a pact or any kind of deal with Scottish Labour should they win the next Hollywood election and she kind of said well <clears throat> you know that uh, they, you know, that if you should consider that if it came, but you know, she didn't sort of say, "Well, we're not, no, we're not doing it." And then this very specific question was, um, "Is there a red line about independence?" And she basically said, "No." So I see already a couple of people. Gordon McIntyre Kemp has said, "You know, if the Greens really would consider um, a pact with a unionist party, there's no way I'm voting for them." Actually, on the list. So it's another of these ones where that really probably wasn't the biggest thing that Lorna Slater thought she was going in to talk about, but it ends up being the big talker. Now, again, there's many ways you could you could answer that. Um, we're supposed to have a proportional parliament. Um, she could have said that, you know, if the people of Scotland decide that they want to make the Scottish Labour Party the largest party, that they who would always be supporters of independence would nonetheless have to deal with that democratic reality. You know, it might have softened the blow somewhat. You still get people being annoyed. But to simply say no independence isn't a, a kind of red line. For an awful lot of people, they vote SNP on the constituency and Green on the list. And that would give quite a lot of pause for thought to some people as to quite, you know, whether that works. So... Uh, I don't know that that was, you know, it, it got it got quite a lot of attention for the Greens, but I'm not sure that that's totally helped their cause. Yeah, because it was seemed, as seeing the interview itself, seemed like a, a a question that she hadn't necessarily considered 
was going to come up and she'd formulated an answer. I think it was kind of, yeah, yeah this is what we think. We're... And she could sense it was coming to the end of the interview. So she probably just thought, look, I'll just be brief here because we should, you know, you can see that you're trying to wind it down. I have almost written, you know, any time I'm on anything, no matter what the subject seems to be about, um, just a thing saying they'll ask about independence. It doesn't matter what the subject is, they'll always come back to that. And you need to have already pre-thought what your answer is going to be on that one. So, um, yeah, there's the problem. It's just, it was, it was unfortunate. And again, the Greens are going to have to clarify this now. Yeah. Let's turn into other green matters. Let's just talk about it's been raining and there's been flooding. The A92 is closed. There's been all sorts of troubles and tribulations uh, in, in the northeast. We've been informed by uh, UK ministers that the problems really came to, to us because um, rain came from the east, which came as a bit of a revelation for everybody in, in Aberdeen and northeast Fife. We, who would have thought? It seems to be a bit of a stromash all round, is it not? I mean, the, the flooding seems to have caught everybody out by... Yeah, but then, you know, I, I tweeted something because I, I was actually up one of the... One of the glens sort of sitting behind Brechin, there's five Angus glens um, and that whole complex of Angus, basically, is owned by some of the biggest landowners in Scotland. To say that these are blasted heaths is putting it blooming mildly. There are some blocks of plantation forestry, but still, I mean, you know, Glen Prosen used to be the largest single grouse moor in Scotland. And when you get to the inner parts of these glens, that one in particular, uh, I was up with a friend recently looking at how it might be changed into uh, mountain biking. It's been bought by Forestry Land Scotland from a merchant banker from London who managed to more than double his money by just speculating on land and keeping it for a grouse moor, which is what most of these places are. So the runoff on that is unbelievable. I mean, people talking about the obvious things about trying to find natural solutions to flooding at the coast. It's these absolutely barren landscapes, you know, can't remember who talks about the grouse moors being poisoned deserts. Sure, that's what we've learnt to look at. And Chris Packham raised quite a few eyebrows when he described Glencoe as a sad place to look at visually because it's not natural to not have trees. It's the result of overgrazing. Um, so there's there's got to be, I must say, I, I was watching an interview again with Martin Geisler, does this guy ever stop? Um, and said to him afterwards, it was an interesting set of discussions about all the things that need to happen, mostly the difficulty of managing to get what is one river system is actually often divided across several councils. And you're asking um, towns upstream to put money into something that will not so much benefit them or even country areas, but will benefit the towns sitting right at the coastal areas. So SEPA needs to have uh, powers that look at a whole river course, something that the English apparently have, but we don't. Good, really sensible points about how we need to look at river courses from here on in, completely omitting the fact that land ownership means you will end up with a fifth of Scotland as a driven grouse moor, and that means no trees and nothing to stop the runoff. So we need to have, I don't know how AI would uh, would factor in that debate, well, would it factor in the small detail that private landowners quite like grouse shooting? Well, some of it is, yeah, we're going to come to AI, but I would also give a bit of a shout out for the Institution of Civil Engineers here in Scotland who have done sterling work over the years, nominating and rewarding uh, awarding to schemes which have been flood alleviation, having tried to film these things in the past. And one of the challenges of actually filming a flood alleviation scheme in, in you know, forays and, uh, and other places is really difficult to film it because if it works, there's no floods. And there's a lot of work has gone into the, the, the engineering, which supports this, this kind of endeavour. It's pretty unglamorous and unrewarded, but somebody somewhere should be kind of saying, the guys who are working on these kind of issues, highly skilled and right, yes, turn to AI. It is the kind of stuff that AI is able to crunch. You know, these systems where you, you need lots and lots of data input to model things. You need bright people. You need 
actuaries to think of stuff where we're we're planning for events which are thought to be one in 200 years which are now coming down to being likely in terms of climate change likely to be less than considerably less than that so but but you would also need to frame up what data the ai was looking at because if you decide that a, th- a thing that happens at the coast stays at the coast and you're not looking further inland yeah. and you're not looking then at land tenure and you know ownership patterns as kind of contributing to the, the problem, you'll end up with a completely different answer than if you yeah. played in details about what the um, hinterland yeah. looks like. And as Andy Whiteman is always fond of saying, flood basins are called flood basins for a reason, that you need rivers need to flood somewhere. So... You know, we'd need to be looking in a much bigger way than we currently are. Yeah, but I think it also to be fair to the engineering community, there's a lot of uh, opportunities where they've, for example, in the in the Angus Glens, they've um, by widening rivers and also changing the the the, the bore that they've been able to in partnership with others, have things like um, uh, river pearls being reintroduced in Glendall. Um, Other, you know, the engineers are not not simple uh, folk who wander around with their uh, pencils and pen protectors in their top pocket. I think a lot of it's about sustainability. It's about working with the environment you're in so a lot of a lot of the stuff is about you can't fight mother nature but you can't how can you fight landowners who want to keep back bare slopes for you know for grouse shooting well that's yeah that's one that's a political issue that's one part of the political issue but it's also part of the how what do you what do you do as first steps it's a bit like going back to the, you know the Middle East. What's the first step that you can do to get towards your eventual goal of of peace? You've got to start with the things that, for example, um, in riverbeds. You've got to think about uh, what what changing the infrastructure will actually do in terms of economic activity, because that's the thing that. Well, you with. could, but I mean, I, what, what demands me is sitting at the bottom of a hill in Fife that is always subject to flooding and my house is right at the bottom so it will catch everything if things don't work is that we generally go to the scene of accidents not the cause of accidents so we can all be sitting down here with sandbags and stuff but all it takes is runoff from the fields at the top uncontrolled you know stuff coming down the roads a council that may or may not have cleared the the road drains and that's the cause so my energy now is I don't actually have sandbags here because <laughs> my kind of flooding or not flooding is so dependent on what happens up the hill. So I spend my time sending blooming pictures to the council and trying to kind of figure out how we might speak to farmers who I'm sure feel they've got enough on their plate without having to put new new systems of field drains in. But that that's where the issue is. And I don't know how, apart from yeah. setting up sort of, you know, anarchist blooming drain clearing well, well we units. Have about that. yeah we but did part, part of the part <laughs> of the, the the challenge in all of this is that until we start to understand that for example losing topsoil which you do in the fields is this is it's no problem to a farmer at all to lose all of this topsoil because what well, there's more topsoil and the, the ground's more fertile and whatever but when it actually starts to get to the point where the yields are going down and you're having to put, spend more and more money on imported fertilizers to do things, whereas a, a drain would actually cure the problem, yeah. then you start to get their attention. But the challenge is, at the moment, going up and confronting people and shouting them isn't going to get the I don't know talking about shouting at people. Well, I think protesting by putting sandbags and... But I haven't done that either. I mean, I've got, you know, okay. Um, I'm trying to talk to people, but it's a difficult one because you need to be having some kind of leadership to try and to, to, to try and say to groups of, of you know, natural areas, and this is a problem again, we're in a Fife Council, population 187,000 people as our local council, 
And we are a little area within it that has no framework, no nothing, and a community council that's, you know, like most of them, 400 quid budget, and you've got to spend it on stationery. Yeah, so but, but even the though they'll come up with, you know, what is yeah, it, uh, I think you're very resilient unfair. communities, we've not got enough structure or clout to be able to go and really expect farmers to turn up and expect there to be, if we came up with some joint project, that expect that there would be some modest funding to help that. True. There's, but there is a, the world divides into uh, every time the disaster happens locally, there's uh, a small group of people who are on the, onto the council straight away to get them to sort the problem out. And there's another bunch of people who are taking their spades and, and mattocks and everything out to go and do that. Listen, I can tell you, I am, personally speaking, to, to do both. I mean, I spend, every time it starts raining, I'm right out there, you know, with all the wellies and all the rest of it. So anyway, let's not go I'll there because it gets me too annoyed. i for the halo at this point. Well, just because it's enlightened self-interest. I will be flooded if, if, it, if those, you know, drains aren't working. So other people might look at rain and think, no, oh, it's raining. Whereas I think, oh God. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, I guess it's uh, for the uppies in this particular community who look down at the at the coast, our coastal dwellers, and look at it as a humanitarian effort to come and clean drains. <laughs> well, it's very appreciated when it's not your house that's going to flood. But anyway, and we we'll, we'll briefly we'll talk about AI, but as a as an out, AI it's a great thing. It's going to make life so much better for everybody, and uh, we should all embrace it. And I don't believe for a moment that it's going to happen in the UK because we just don't. We don't do technology particularly well. Right. So, so most this is the AI summit that Rishi, that Rishi Sunak's about to embark on and hoping he can get some headlines back around. But, I mean, most people's worries are just that their jobs are going to disappear because, you know, data will be fed into another source and AI will figure out everything, you know, right write resumes, you know, rearrange well, it does all of that. appointments. So, well, it does all of that, but I'm not sure that are these the jobs that we think we want to hold on to. I think the more complicated things that it's going to do are going to be about um, health prevention. You know, it's going to be in, in those kind of areas. It's going to be the things which are going to help us make cars not run into each other it's going to do better better and better weather forecasting it's those kind of things true the maybe the maybe the receptionist in the in in a, a local business is going to disappear but if you've walked around the offices now in most towns city centers there's very rarely even a uh, even a security guard on the front desk you know, uh, hybrid working has, has changed the nature of work. And, you know, to be frank, at the moment, the kind of jobs that aren't going to be changed are going to be the service jobs, which are going to be looking after each other, whether it's going to be fixing floor, plumbing, actually doing the, the thing which is going to be mostly did some of the older folk. It's going to be just looking after us and ensuring that we have, you know, dignified old age and whatever. Those jobs aren't, aren't going to go away. The question is going to be that with AI is just the single thing that we've got to keep our eye on, which is data. Data is the new oil and it's the thing that everybody's after, whether it's the Chinese via TikTok, allegedly, or whether it's the social media platforms which go, you know, we're harvesting more and more of the things that we do and the screen time that we do to try and pretend that they know us. I, and I don't think they do, because as you know, with a, an androgynous first name like Chris, I get adverts for all sorts of things. I get really worried when they start to send me gender-specific, age-specific adverts mm. for me. Yeah, it but is the moment, creepy. At the moment, I still like, you know, the... Um, the Barbie pom-pom slippers that uh, get advertised to me. Gosh, I'm sitting, I've got that blooming Alexa on. She's going to be sitting drinking this all up. I'm going to get all the Barbie adverts now. It is very possible. Thanks. 
<laughs> but anyway, just to to finish, um, there's a couple of things just to mention. There's they're actually talking about the Grouse Moors thing reminded me that there is a revive, uh, the big revive conference, which is actually being um, chaired by Chris Packham is on in Perth. Now, I can't remember if it's next weekend, but um, we'll put it actually in the notes. And there's also the Breakup of Britain conference, which is... I've been kind of just slightly uh, involved in organising, but not a main organiser at all. Um, And it's got people from all over the place. It's Leanne Wood from Plaid Cymru, Clive Lewis from Labour, um, Caroline Lucas, the Green MP who's standing down kind of sadly in a way, because I think she's been, you know, pretty amazing. Um, people from Ireland, people from Firth of uh, Firth of the Parish altogether, and the, the the sole question and the focus of it is Tom Nairn's book, The Breakup of Britain, written almost fifty years ago, which was predicting exactly in a way the grinding forces that that uh, Britain is subject to now, and it's trying to look from a whole variety of perspectives. And I'll tell you, it has not been an easy thing because. Uh, the, the normal channels of funding, which particularly would include, for example, the Joseph Rowntree Foundation that normally supports, you know, sort of frisky democratic stuff. No, this is too hot to trot. The idea that you're actually talking about the breakup of Britain, there's no, none of the usual funders have come in behind this, which is why the ticket price is 25 quid, which I know is a lot for people. But there it is. It should be an incredible day, actually looking at all sorts of different issues with tremendous speakers. And it's an attempt to sort of kickstart. We'll just pull together everybody that's basically having difficulties with the status quo and and may be meaningful for everyone. I mean, for Labour, um, you know, they're coming and thinking it's a bit woo to talk about um, having, you know, you're talking about Andy Burnham earlier. He's the metropolitan mayor of 12 councils who didn't elect him. You know, and he doesn't have, you know, he has to work via them because he doesn't have a sort of apparatus of his own because that is not devolution. So that's where these guys are at, is they don't actually even have those powers. They want to talk about that at the same time as most people in Scotland that will be coming don't even want to hear about federalism because it just ain't never going to happen. So we've got a whole load of different, you know, it's like people starting, the, the firing guns going, and there's people who've been at it for 30 years People have been out for two months and we're all going to somehow manage to make sense to one another on the 18th of November. So, you know, it's um, breakupofbritain.net is the website. But again, that'll be in the notes. And finally, Pat Joyce, get well, you know. That sounds good, like a good wish. And finally, from me, if there was any suggestion in this podcast that I am not compassionate towards all who suffer in the conflicts wherever they are please I, I remember I try and remember all parties in my prayers 